Hello, and welcome to some Derbs Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I'm your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk about how much graphics really matter in video games. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. And when it comes to video games, I feel like one of the biggest discussions we have been having over the course of the last, like, three decades of video game kind of creation, right, is the graphical fidelity, you know, like, like discussion, right? Starting in the big jump from 2D pixel games to... 3D games with, you know, like polygon-based games and stuff like that, and then just refining those polygons over and over and over and over and over again until we are at, like, the modern iteration where, like, you know, Shrek's face has, like, 14,000 polygons in, like, the licensed Shrek game or whatever. Shrek's Um, face has more polygons in this game than it did in the original DreamWorks film. Probably. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that is definitely, that is definitely kind of, like, the thing. Um, so... But this is your topic, so, like, did... What, what, what brought this... What brought this to the fore for you? Like, what brought... What, what? So, so, honestly, um, uh, YouTuber I follow, uh, Clemps, uh, does a bunch of videos, usually on JRPGs, but he did one about RuneScape. And at the very tail end of his video, he brought up a thing about the graphics in RuneScape... And, you know, how them not how them being kind of poor isn't really a big deal. And that got me thinking, because I think, you know, sometimes it, essentially sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, this, this is kind of related to an idea that's been stewing around in my head for a while, which is essentially, you know, I think Path of Exile is a better game than Diablo 3, but I can't get myself to play Path of Exile um, for long enough to really get deep into it. Um, mm-hmm. But I can get myself to play Diablo for a while, and I think that that's related to um, some larger aspects of game feel, but I think primarily the graphics, and not just kind of like the polygon count on the models, but things like uh, the animations and kind of the slickness um, and kind of the, uh, the, the care and the, uh, the, the smooth, like kind of the, the, the refinement that you get with a AAA game that, you know, PoE is an excellent game, but... Um, uh, it, it's you know just not Blizzard levels. No, yeah, like that polish is that polish is like real, um, and it's something that I feel like it's tough to replicate for small, um, like smaller scale developers, especially in like a three D sort of uh, scenario. There have been a couple of games that I feel like have been um, like big three D indie successes and everything like that. But all of the big, big indie games that we typically talk about when we talk about like the super successful wave of kind of, you know, post twenty ten um, indie games like Stardew Valley, right? Uh, or Super Meat Boy, right? Like most of these are two D animated games. Uh, even Cuphead is the is probably like the most recent inheritor kind of of like this title um, where a lot of them go for 2D animation because it is a lot easier to create the level of polish necessary to kind of attract a real gamer audience rather than going for 3D. Not to say that it can't be done, right? Like obviously I guess No Man's Sky would be a good example of it getting done. Also, there was another game that was an indie game that um, 
uh, that was basically like a, a full 3D AAA game recently that I can't remember the name of. But um, I, mean, I like feel Warframe like Warframe looks really good. It's you know it's not perfect, but it looks oh yeah yeah Warframe is like another good example, right? So like there are some, but I feel like it's very clear that indie games skew towards 2D animation because it's a lot easier to polish up 2D animation for a small scale studio than it is to polish up 3D animation. And I think I think another big part of this, and this is kind of what what kind of got me down the track of this is a potential topic for the show, is that if they are 3D, they tend to go for a particular style such that the low resolution doesn't matter so much. Um, I mean, the most obvious example is probably Minecraft, although it's probably not the greatest example of like in terms of uh, the, the effect I'm talking about. But games like uh, like The Witness or games like um, uh, even, even No Man's Sky, right? Like the, the fidelity isn't super tight, but it is stylized in such a way that mm-hmm. um, essentially, even if it doesn't look perfect, uh, it looks essentially at the end state of what it wants to be. That, that, that was a confusing sentence. Like it looks like it meant to look that way rather than say like the PS one era games, which look like they want to be more detailed, but you know, the, we lack the computing power to draw them. Right. Like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the core thing here is kind of like aesthetic, right. Where there are certain games that, that shoot for different types of aesthetics. Um, and the realism is not, necessarily the defining aesthetic of all you know what i mean like not all games want to be that realistic i think a game like world of warcraft is a good example i think where like it is cartoony and it plays into the cartoonishness such that like even if i am uh you know like a wow player who's been playing since vanilla and i remember like super bad kind of like blocky models it's not all that weird for me to go back to older you know, versions of the game to see, like, Dalaran, which is from 10 years ago at this point, right? Like, Dalaran from The Wrath of the Lich King. That still looks like, wow. It is still consistent with WoW's overall aesthetic, even though it it has become so much easier over time to make the game more textured and polygoned and, you know, like, all of those other technical kind of concerns. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or absolutely. something like... And, and I, I think know. that WoW is a, a, a good example, too, because it's one that you could do a lot of more work on, right? Like, you know, yeah. what, what's the joke that the wheels on the tanks went from, like, seven sides to nine or something when they did the graphical update? Um, so, you know, they're still not great, but, like, you know, it's it's stylistic enough that it that it's recognizable. And I think I think a big thing with WoW, and this is a, this is a thing that a uh, friend of the cast, Akshay, has expressed to me, um, is that the animations in WoW have always been smooth. They might have always been the most detailed or yeah. the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, artistic, but they are all very smooth. And I think I think that smoothness is actually really important to a game feeling right. Like I think, no, I agree with you. I very much agree that that is a big piece of the aesthetic. Like part of part of I think what makes some of these animations look so good is the is like the the sort of realistic kind of heft and weight to them. Um, I've talked about this a little bit before in the past, but like 
something that is neat and interesting or something that was like neat and interesting and made it feel better to play a fury warrior in legion was the animation updates that their abilities received right so like certain abilities used to use like essentially default animations but then they got a couple of like custom animations right and so like the big powerhouse move that fury warriors uses called rampage which is like a um kind of like a two second channeled hit essentially but they they gave it a custom animation where you kind of are slashing and swinging your your weapons around in such a way that it just like felt good to play and going from the basically same build without the the animation to the build with the animation materially affected how good it was to play fury warrior because all of a sudden the animation for rampage like really reflected what the the ability itself did right and i think that we actually devalue that sort of thing as gamers fairly often so i I, so i think i don't think we devalue it i think we don't i think i think okay so how do i put this i think we kind of outwardly devalue it but i think that we notice it kind of intrinsically and we don't kind of pay attention to it i think Kind of like the, the weightiness of animations is part of why the gunplay in Destiny feels so good. Is- oh, I actually okay, I see what you're saying. I get that. It's not yeah, it's not that we downplay this, right? But it's something. It's like a. It's like a. You may not have noticed it, but your brain did. Sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think we talk about this in abstract terms a lot. Like we kind of are addressing some of these kind of like core aesthetic issues when we talk about certain aspect you know like kinesthetics is all about this right and so if we're ever complimenting like game feel and stuff like that i feel like a lot of the time those things are um reflections of some of these aesthetic choices right like you know for instance when i talk about how good it like the differentiated feeling of playing a colossus an interceptor a storm or a ranger in anthem right and how each of those like the storm your your uh, kind of uh, weightless and flighty and the interceptor you're like agile and stuff like that like a, really a lot of what I was talking about was just the aesthetics of what it's like to move around the 3D space in this animated rig you know what I mean yeah no uh, uh, absolutely um, absolutely that's it's it, I mean you can see this in, in all sorts of places too like um, what is it so, uh, I've been playing Magic the Gathering Arena uh, recently, um, and uh, if I, I didn't play a ton of MTGO, which was the original Magic client, but that was just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, bland, you play the, the game. Um, and then Hearthstone kind of revolutionized online card games because it gave the cards all weighty animations, even if ultimately it was a lot of kind of like tokens moving around. It still, like, was smooth, it felt really good. Um, and then Magic was forced to bring that into MTGA, which they've done wonderfully, right? But that, that's why it's a, that's why Arena is a Hearthstone competitor, and MTGO really wasn't. Um, I, 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 th- I think it's th- these kinds of like these uh, uh, flo- these aesthetic choices is, is, is the right way to put it because uh, that's that's the right term for it. Um, no, yeah, I, I actually I very much agree with that, and I think that there are some things to Hearthstone like to the aesthetics that feel like just really really good you know like getting getting a minion as like a small minion to attack the opponent's face and it kind of has that like 
pop sound, right? But then getting a big fat minion like a mountain giant, right? Like an 8-8 and having it, you know, hit the opponent's face and go like, wham, right? Like those, yeah. just little just little things. Um, even even little things like, so for instance, when you're about to attack with a, with a minion and you click the minion and then you drag it, then you drag like the targeting arrow around and then the targeting arrow... Uh, is you, it's kind of like moving a little bit. Like there's like it's dashed and the dashes are kind of moving. Like even that kind of helps create this 3D space, right? Of you know of the game board. Um, even things like just clicking the empty game board and little fragments of like you know what I mean. Like uh, I guess just rock. Yeah, kind it's... of like pop up. I think all of these are sort of tiny aesthetic decisions in Hearthstone that help make the game uh, immersive and a a singular kind of vision, right, for uh, yeah, so, for somebody who is playing it on that aesthetic level. And, and I think that the thing that Hearthstone did that MTGO didn't was, um, you know, Playing card, trading card games are a very tactical, uh, tactile, not tactical. They are tactical as well, but they're a very tactile experience, right? Moving cards around, placing them down, the kind of flicks and sounds. And it's a hard thing to drag to the virtual world because you can't touch things, right? You can only touch your mouse. But Hearthstone did an excellent job in getting as close to that experience as you can with a mouse. Um, and, you know, with a touch screen as well, right? Like, every, if even if you can't feel the card stock between your fingers, you can kind of get that same sense by playing things out um and you know the i think that they they kind of bridge the gap there by doing the things that you can't do with um with with, with a tabletop or with a with a physical card game right like um i guess signing those attacks right you as you were talking about uh that arrow the way that arrow kind of like uh snaps to like snaps to an enemy when you're hovering over it just feels like that that polish feels right and it feels like you know i am attacking that thing um which is yeah. you know better than the real life experience but you know and it makes up for the fact that you that you know you don't have the card stock as, a, as and even thing. things like and even things like when a minion comes into play and it makes like its entrance noise and then when a minion attacks it makes its attack noise and then when a minion dies it makes its death noise right like all of those i think also kind of like filter in on this aesthetic level right like you know so for instance somebody once somebody once um i had a, i had a discussion with somebody about whether or not you could have a successful ccg that is loreless right where they are just stats on a on cards essentially yeah like stats on playing cards or whatever um and his point was essentially along the lines of like poker right you know like you could have a a ccg that is essentially poker or you know, any other game that you would otherwise play with a, a deck of playing cards, right? There's no lore to that. Th those things aren't necessary. But I do think that there is something to the lore of Magic the Gathering cards and of Hearthstone cards and of really any trading card game. Um, I'm sure Yu-Gi-Oh! has, like, a really, like, deep lore that we could dig into if we wanted, right? Yeah, there was um, a whole show about uh, Kaiba. Yeah, right? <laughs> Uh, the all like all of that stuff, I think, also helps influence this aesthetic, um, and help uh, the game kind of like differentiate itself. Even though Hearthstone is, you know, it's a pretty two D, you know, game. It's like a two D game that fakes its own three D ness, if that makes sense. 
Well, it's it's because it's like a you know trading card games or CCGs are two D games yeah, that kind yeah. of exist in the physical world, so they have their three three Dness and uh, approximating that level of three Dness is really easy. So the the card games do that, right? Even though everything happens on a plane, things still float above it, right? I mean, we we've been having that since like you know like. I don't know. What's a good example? Like Civ, right? Like Civ is a 2D game, but uh, since at least four, they've been 3D models rendered, even though the game can be played on a flat surface, um, you know, with, with just chits and tokens. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess kind of like a, a big part of this is, is graphics matter insofar as they can hit the aesthetic. I, I'm curious, buddy. I know a lot of people can go back and play classics, like right. like Final Fantasy, like RuneScape. Uh, Final Fantasy VII is one that gets thrown around a lot. Um, what other game? The, just any of the, the, the PS1 games. I find I have a hard time with a lot of them. Like, I have a hard time going back to Neverwinter Nights. I have a hard time going back to um, some of those some of those older games. But other ones, I, I don't, right? Like, I played uh, Metal Gear Solid 1 for the first time uh, it was a number of years ago at this point, but it was much long mm-hmm. after it came out. Um, and I didn't have that problem. Do, do you have those sorts of problems? I do have so, those sorts of problems sometimes, but it really depends on, like, it really depends on the game itself. And I think the the core thing is when a game is kind of like, I guess I would call it like punching above its weight class, aesthetically speaking, right? Where it's a game that wants to be considered you know what i mean that like it's a game that is going for let's say photorealism right or something akin to kind of a naturalistic realism but like it is playing on 2003 graphics technology those games i find are very tough to go back to but any game that is kind of solid in its own um aesthetic framework even if that framework is a little kind of like wonky and wobbly uh, I typically have an easy time getting past that wonk or that wobble. Like, so, for instance, um, something that I've been going back to and playing recently is StarCraft II, right? Uh, I've been playing this store, the campaign starting in Wings of Liberty, which came out in 2010. Um, and the... So that's, so that's about 10 years ago. And in those 10 years, I know because I've been playing, you know, the WoW expansions over time i've seen the cinematics team at blizzard get better and better and better and better right and so i see things like really polygony cylinders in the cutscenes in starcraft 2 but otherwise like the that cowboy aesthetic works so well for itself that those sorts of things like don't bother me all that much if that makes sense um but i but on the other end of the spectrum, I have gone back to play things like Dragon Age Origins is kind of an unplayable mess. Partially for gameplay reasons, because I think that that game did, doesn't have the most intuitive and straightforward gameplay. But just like part of it is those polygons are not stylized enough to be kind of native to their own time. Um, but they're also not 
you know, real enough to be the, like that I can go and and play them. Do you know? Does that make sense? Do you know? Yeah, what I mean? no, I, I, absolutely. I, 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 I actually think, think the Dragon Age games are a really interesting version of this because in Dragon Age Origins and Awakening, right? Like, I think it. I have a tough time going back to that. Dragon Age Two is really in the sweet spot. I think Dragon Age Two will look good and be you know, kind of aesthetically playable for its entire runtime because it kind of hit the nail on its head. And then Dragon Age Inquisition kind of fell back down a little bit. Not quite so bad, right? It is 2014, but, you know, it, it was made in a different engine and stuff like that. And I feel like some of those aesthetic problems that I see in Dragon Age Inquisition were problems that had been solved in Dragon Age 2. And so it's almost like, you know... It, it is a moving target, and it is not just linearly, like, one way forward. There are, you know, there are missteps that get relearned, if that makes sense. Yeah, see, that, that's, that's interesting, because I, I, I have personally always found that any games that essentially want to be photorealistic, or, or, or even just kind of, like, uh, are clearly aspiring to uh, a, a, a level of detail that they can't reach in the base engine... Um, kind of like a lot of PS1 era anime games, uh, mm-hmm. like the, I mentioned before, Final Fantasy, kind of fall into this trip, right? Where like they have cutscenes that are better that, that look better than the uh, the actual gameplay. Um, if I have, I find I have a lot of trouble going back to those for kind of these reasons that they they just don't feel about right. And I, I haven't played a ton of uh, any of the Dragon Age games, so I can't comment on them specifically. Um, but I can say that something that kind of hit me in this way uh, is uh, it was Anthem, and, and not the the actual mechs because I think they are very well done. But I but the faces in for whatever it was, uh, they 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 always seemed off to me, um, and you know not not in the meme way that Andromeda videos were, um, but in just kind of like they, they weren't quite right, and, and they were they they were bothering me from from day one and and I, I think that highlights kind of something that's like i guess akin to the uncanny valley or maybe it's just the uncanny valley where if you're close but not quite there or like even if you look good statically if you don't look good in motion uh, which is kind of related to the animations thing we were talking about it, it, it can really hurt the feel of your game um yeah it, do, do, do you do you feel the same way about about those faces, or do you think I'm off base? Uh, I don't feel that way about Anthem. I thought Anthem was really good in terms of its like faces and the animations. Um, I sort of wonder how much of it is like the main story versus the side stuff. I did basically everything. I I, I like I'm pretty sure I exhausted like every conversation that you could ever have in Anthem. Um, and I'm trying to like really remember if there was anything that really like kind of caught me off guard. Um, I, I also wonder like this is a weird problem for PC games is how much this differs by your settings, right? Like how much how much your game will not like will will fail on these metrics if you don't have it cranked up high enough, or if you have it cranked yeah. up too high. I could see that happening too. Yeah, I mean, I have a really powerful machine, and so I wonder if that makes a. Uh... Yeah, I mean, like that I, makes a difference versus a hypothetical gamer who is playing on kind of like the lowest settings possible. 
Yeah, that, that's got to be. It's like I, I do not have a ton of experience with with, with that kind of programming, but that's got to be a difficult kind of art to to make the game kind of have the same aesthetic feeling on a variety of settings and a variety of hardware. I mean, you know, that, that's yeah, always yeah. Been the case. But I actually think one of one of the things that's really interesting to me now when it comes to um, aesthetic is a is UI design affects me a little bit more than it used to. And the and the poster child for this is my crowning jewel, you know, video game franchise at this point, Total War Warhammer and Total War Warhammer 2. There's something about the UI that changed between Total War Warhammer, Total War Warhammer 1, right? Um and Total War Warhammer 2, which I, I can't even really, like, put my finger on it. Like, the textures of the buttons that you press in the UI are just, like, crisper and, I don't know, like, reflective or something. Like, the the, the outlines are sharper and, and something. I, 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 like, I can't even articulate the difference. But everything about the UI in Total War Warhammer that kind of felt, like, clunky and slapped together at the last second all of a sudden felt amazingly sleek in the sequel game. And it's just, and it's not, it's not even really with anything else in the game, right? Like I'm, I, th- these are both very recent, you know, these are both very recent games. There hasn't been a whole lot of, you know, graphical improvement from the very first factions of game one to the very first factions of game two. They all look about the same, right? So there's got to be, you know, so it is really only that singular point of the UI in the second game looks sharper and more elegant for some reason that I can't quantify. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely get it, especially with with, with this UI stuff. Um, You know, my my work lets me me to deal with some UI stuff. So there's, you know, I I know some very talented UI artists who can talk about this probably in more detail. Um, But, uh, but I, I definitely think that that can kind of really define all. Like it kind of contributes to that polish thing that we were talking about. Like uh-huh. I find that the Civ games have always felt more polished than the Paradox games, even though I think that. Oh that, yeah, yeah. No, I super feel that. Um, even though I would probably say that the the Paradox games probably are a little bit. I don't know if more Paul. I, I think there is more work in the Paradox games. Not to to, to throw shade at Firaxis. I just just that, um, just that like the the Civilization games are are, I think intentionally a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but speaking of the Paradox games, like I've been I've been kind of eating up Imperator streams, and it looked like um so in, in because I've been looking at Imperator streams, I saw. Uh, a dude, I forget his name, I'll, 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 I think it's like Isaro or something, I'll, I'll link it in the description, but he did a grand campaign from CK2 to uh, EU4 to Vicky to HOI4, and just kind of like watching that all roll forward, and then looking at the Imperator stuff, which is the latest iteration of that interface for a very similar set of controls is super interesting, especially how they affect the way that those games feel, right? Like, um, like... I'd say that CK2, EU4, and HOI are contemporary-ish. Obviously, HOI4 is newer. Um, I think CK2 is the oldest. Um, but uh, uh, they, they all kind of are built around... They're all built around the Klaus Schwitz engine. Um, and so they, they're, they're kind of working from the same backing. 
But um, the the HUI four interface, I feel like you've obviously played more than me, but uh, it feels less elegant to me than the uh, CK two. Oh, see, you know, I actually like the the Hoi interface, the Hearts of Iron interface, quite a bit. So, um, so, so the real I, I was, turning I'm, point for me was Stellaris, like. Playing Stellaris threw into sharp relief how dated the UI design aesthetically of Europa Universalis and CK2 feel. Um, and then that only continued forward with... Hearts of Iron. Hearts of Iron, yeah. Hearts of Iron, there's something, about, there's, there's something about the Hearts of Iron aesthetic that works for me just because it feels like period in a way where no, like that, that, that was, that was going to be the... my ultimate my, my ultimate point is that i feel like the hoi interface is less elegant than take but it feels like a world war ii interface right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no th- okay i i absolutely agree with you because like you know so for instance your your unit stat card is all typed out in that like typewriter font and it has like ink blotches like you know like a blotchy typewriter some you know someone was was typing out these unit statistics or whatever um on like on a on a card and so it simultaneously feels like appropriate and it's a great aesthetic that is like modern in a way but it is but it is precisely modern because of its like it's like a period piece do you know what i mean yeah no i I, absolutely it's 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 uh it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting because see like I feel like CK2, which is what I've had the most uh, experience with, it, it's, it's showing its age at this point. But because it's – because, you know, it's it's not like you're going to have real scroll – you know, like you're not going to – you're not really able to recreate that aesthetic in a way that makes a lot of sense on a computer screen. It, mm. it, it feels a little bit more modernized. Um, and like I was saying, the Imperator stuff I've seen – um, it actually looks a little bit big and chunky to me, but I think that that contributes to like the uh, the kind of Roman aesthetic, right? It looks like, like you know, it it it, it feels a little cheap, but like it's like a lot of the panels look like they're like on marble or whatever, right? And so yeah, 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 yeah. I actually really like the uh, I, I really like the Imperator aesthetic of what I've seen, I guess, so far. Um, I, I I do too. Um, I, I think the bi- the best example for that Roman aesthetic I can think of is I played a ton of Total War Rome One when I was a kid, um, and that was kind of going for more like the, the the photo realistic kind of angle. Not really, but um, but like you know the unit card pictures were like renderings of the model in a in in a way. Whereas um, the Rome Two is like these are these really pretty. Um, kind of uh, abstractions that are like drawings. Um, yeah, like something you would see on like a Grecian urn or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's th- that really builds into that uh, aesthetic uh, really well. Um, and uh, just kind of like on, on on that kind of in that kind of sphere, like Vicky Two. Um, I have never played it, but I again I was watching this guy's full playthrough, um, and it didn't look great but it definitely scored points for like feeling victorian-ish not not you know quite quite big but it it it, it, uh it definitely kind of felt like i was looking at like a a a store like a a map of a map that felt like it was in the right style if that makes sense it felt pulpy um which is like end of victorian area era um so I, i i definitely think that that's that's an appreciation point Though I will say something that stands out to me as 
you know, like, so, you know, outside of UI design, um, something else that also stands out to me as really indicative of a good aesthetic is also kind of like, and I don't know how else to put this, but like clutter. Um, the best example I can think of this actually is the difference between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2. Where, like, in Mass Effect 1, all of the, you know, like, all of the Citadel is, like, very sparse. You know, like, this is the centerpiece of the galaxy where almost everyone in the galaxy congregates. And there's, like, a handful of NPCs that are all, you know, pretty far apart or whatever like that. And then you go from that to something like Omega in Mass Effect 2. Omega being, you know, like the seedy underbelly, former mining colony, like stuck in an asteroid sort of thing. And Omega just has like people everywhere and they're like waiting in line to get into a nightclub and there's like garbage cans that are out on the street and stuff like that. And there's something about like the clutter that came about from Mass Effect 1 to mass effect 2 that helped one of those feel like a real living breathing thriving world right and the other one feel like you know kind of uh like kind of like a theme park right like a video game theme park so so that's really interesting because i I was i was actually having a conversation about this kind of thing recently um with uh it's not important who with but uh, uh essentially that that also kind of, though, uh, affects the aesthetic of the game in this weird way. It also affects the gameplay of the game in this weird way, which is um, in the these older games, without that clutter, you don't need to, like, highlight objects in the environment because any object that you can see can probably be interacted with. Or if mm-hmm. you can't, there's so few of them, it's not a big deal. But, like, with the advent of kind of, like, clutter in games and kind of, like, those artistic flourishes... Most of that is not interactable or like not meaningfully interactable. So you kind of have to do this thing where you highlight the things that you're supposed to be able to to interact with. Oh yeah, the... that actually makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. I super feel that. It's like it's why like in modern games, if you're if you're looking for an item, a lot of the time the item will have like a sheen or something like that. Yeah. Where it will like draw attention to the eye. Yeah, and you know, in in some games, it's it's much more aggressive than others, right? Like, uh, like you'll get like like pop ups and, and and highlights, and because you you have to do that because you can't like um, uh, example Division Two, which I've been playing a bit of recently. Um, there are like hundreds of suitcases like just scattered on the streets in various places, and like once in a while they're interactable, so they've got this. This, this orange highlight on them if they're if they're really interactable. And it's kind of subtle, right? It's in a way that, like, you have to be paying attention to see, and I think that's part of the objective. But because you can't, like, rummage through any uh, any any given suitcase or even, you know, even, like, you know, interact with it in a non-meaningful way, you kind mm-hmm. of have to have that. And I wonder if that, like, I wonder if that's to the, to the detriment of games. I, I think it is in some ways, but... Rather, is it negative? Is it on balance a detriment? Right, like do the things be gained by having that that clutter justify the uh, the, the 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 kind of uh, penalty we have to pay in these these highlightings? And on top of that, I wonder where the next place to go with it is. Right, like is is there like maybe a place where it looks? Uh, how do I want to put this? Where where it will eventually we'll, we'll be able to highlight it in a way that doesn't feel obtrusive, but it still does its job while letting us 
kind of have these cluttered environments. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I almost kind of like wonder if, um, like, see, part of me thinks that we are, uh, like, it's a there, there's a lot of component parts, I guess, to 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 all of this. Like, so for instance, something that I've been thinking about is photorealism as like an end goal right like i remember back when it was like the crisis era of games where it was all about more fidelity and more and more and more you know clarity and definition and detail and we're gonna render every single fucking blade of grass and all of you know whatever skyrim um and the logical endpoint of that is literally photorealism, right? Like, you know, a version of a game that looks like real life. Um, but something that I saw kind of popping up as we were as we were in the midst of that conversation was video game academics and, you know, like critics who are essentially kind of saying, like, video games are going to go for photorealism. First of all, that's practically impossible, especially as you get into things like, you know... Uh, water effects and stuff like that, which is just going to be, like, harder and harder to kind of, like, get across. But even things like ray tracing for light sources and everything like that um, is just, like, these super intensive processes. Um, And instead, they kind of predicted a wave of games that would be sort of detailed in their aesthetic, but they were not going to go for photorealism anymore. And there, I think that that happened, right? Like, and we can look at kind of the wave of games that sort of came in the wake of that, right? Like, you know, like Bioshock Infinite is maybe one of the better examples of this that I can think of, where everything was definitely, defin- like, it was definitely defined, and there was a lot of, um, you know, like a lot of texture to that to that whole aesthetic, right? But Elizabeth is walking around with these big cartoony doe eyes, right? She looks like a Disney princess. She does not look like a real woman. Um, And I feel like we have been moving in that direction games-wise ever since. And that, to loop this kind of back around um, to your point, the that has had an adverse relationship with kind of clutter, right? Because something that you can kind of always do is introduce more clutter to a scene. Um, even if like, even if it's not photorealistic clutter. So like in a certain sense, I kind of feel like, you know, most modern games have kind of gone away from chasing like hardcore definition in graphical fidelity and in, and instead have kind of put the, ensuing resources that we have gotten by getting better processors and solid state hard drives and all this stuff into making game environments bigger and denser in terms of um you know the the items or the doodads that are within any individual scene yeah no, i i think i think i agree with you i feel like even like the the games that are traditionally more realistic looking like call of duty the soldiers don't even quite look realistic anymore they kind of feel like you know, uh, hyper-real maybe is the right way to put it. I, I think, like, vehicles... Yeah, they're not, like, surreal, right? Yeah. But, but like, like vehicles hit the mark pretty well. Um, and I think that part of that's just, it's easier to do that, right? Like, it's easier to model those things very realistically. Um, I wonder how much of this, too, is that... Um, is one uncanny valley effects, right? Like, if you get really close to hyper-photo-real, but you miss the mark by a little bit, it ends up feeling really bad. Um... And how much of this is, like, at what point do, like, 
you know, a lot of video games have violence in them. At what point does something looking really real start to feel bad? Right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel, I feel like that's maybe, maybe uh, a, a red herring because we have violent movies. It doesn't feel bad. I just, you know, I, I have had the uh, displeasure maybe. I, I, I've essentially, I've watched some videos online of like some real videos of, of people suffering um, and they're not fun to watch. Um, and uh, they are materially different from like a video game or an or or an uh, like an action movie. And I can't, I you know, I, I don't have the words to describe what makes those different. But uh, I wonder if games will maybe ever get to the point where we don't push realism because it, it, it you know it starts to look too much like a snuff film. Yeah, and I almost sort term. of wonder if you know, like, like so. For instance, I just did a whole you know back to front rewatch of. Um, Game of Thrones, right? Um, but I, but but then you know, last week we saw the Hellboy movie. The gore in the Hellboy movie is way more cartoonish than the gore in Game of Thrones, and that and there is something to the kind of and there's like a like a visceral nature to it that is correlated to the realism, right? Like when someone is dying in Game of Thrones because you know, like their guts are falling out and you can see that they're like desperately trying to hold their like intestines in their slashed belly or something like that. There's just like so there's something like that is so much more terrifying, right? About the realism of that kind of a scenario compared to the unreality of, you know, a demon picking up a dude, putting one, you know, like one hand on his ankle, one hand on his wrist and then splitting him down the middle. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so over the top that at a certain point you can't even, like, take it seriously. Um, and so I, I, I very much agree with you, and I think that video games may end up in a similar kind of situation where, like, the Gears of War, right, or, you know, like, the games that get insanely, you know, bloody might end up kind of being less disturbingly real than games that are... Uh, you know, that are willing to model someone's head kind of like cracking open because like, you know, like an egg or something like that because they got shot in the face. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, huh. I I feel like, I feel like that photorealism is going to be reserved for games where you're not doing it a lot. Right. Like I think there are movies that do that kind of thing. And they do it well, but they reserve it for kind of like really intense moments, mm-hmm. and they don't show it a lot. If you like, um, that's been a while, but I think Saving Private Ryan has some of this. Oh and, yeah, man, Saving Private Ryan, woof, right? Yeah, and uh, but like, you couldn't do Saving Private Ryan the video game, I don't think, um, or maybe you could as like you know a one to one retelling because you'd have it be spaced wouldn't be a very good video game. Uh, but you couldn't do, like, you know, the whole Saving Private Ryan aesthetic as a Call of Duty because it would be too brutal. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> imagine imagine having, having in the middle of a multiplayer match to choke an enemy soldier out. Like, that would be, like... Like, that'd be the type, it's the type of thing that, like, you make a, a fake comedy video online about because you do it once and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the you know, like all of the the over the top violence in something like Mortal Kombat, I feel like is less, you know, um, 
punishing than than the violence in a you know in a game that wants to be more realistic than that like spec ops the line is probably a great example of this right um where it's a game that wants to be like very realistic not photorealistic but you know realistic with the the game and the world that it is portraying and so when you compare that kind of a world right to something like Mortal Kombat where like fucking you know Johnny Cage or whoever is punching a hole in your chest and it zooms in on an x-ray and shows all of your bones breaking and stuff like that like yeah that yeah i i i i think i agree with you um not not that i don't think that it couldn't be uh moving in a way right like i think a game about like the hardcore brutality and violence of war that is not dressed up and that is not sensationalized um that you isn't know, a team really death be insightful. Game, right? like, yeah, yeah, but that would obviously not be a team deathmatch game. Definitely not. Right. I, I, this, is, this is the fundamental problem, right? Like, we, we want to kind of, like, you know, do kind of, like, you know, model the conflict of war in, in a fun way, which is kind of, you know, horrifying when taken out of context to say it that way. But, like, you know, we, we don't want to give gamers PTSD from, like, you know, playing a World War One game. Um, which, which you know, I, if you did it real enough, like, I guess you could you could probably get there. That'll be that'll be weird if at some point we have somebody who gets PTSD from playing like VR too hard. Um, like that, that will definitely be very very strange. I also kind of like wonder if that's sort of why we gravitate so much towards like World War Two, you know, and we're not seeing like, are there are there like Vietnam shooters? Like maybe Battlefield Black Ops, Vietnam, you know, um, and, the, and the modern warfare games are, are modern, um, but, yeah. but but kind of in in this vein, um, I watched a video of someone recording themselves or recording themselves playing a the VR a VR shooter, and one of the guys like just like turns his gun on himself and shoots himself, and it was kind of like I was like like. I, I was watching this on YouTube and I was fucking stunned in a way that like I didn't expect to be. And I think part of this was that because because of the um, you know kind of the the lack of one to one movement uh, control with the uh, with the hand controllers, mm-hmm. like the hand was shaking as if like he was actually like you know like like like, like, like he was considering suicide. And so it like it was like super brutal and it like really put me off my my uh, my, my lunch. To, uh, in a word for the next couple of minutes and it's like this, this is like a, a weird feeling thing. and I, you know I played some of these games and I don't feel that way when I'm playing it. it's just kind of like this weird confluence of things where like it, it it felt realer than it was if that makes sense um and like the the confluence of, of factors just made it look realer than it was supposed to um yeah I also kind of think that this might be sort of why there are a lot of uh, you know, fantasy and science fiction games that abstract this stuff out in a lot of ways, right? Like, you know, in Destiny, when you're running around shooting fucking laser guns or in Halo or in any other kind of science fiction sort of game, like, I think there is a real disconnect between that and what we would think of as realism in firing a, a weapon, right? Like, this is actually something that that has measurable 
kind of like impacts on the world because we are we are conditioned in a, in a culture that uses stock gunshot sounds in order to you know in order to communicate gunshots but those aren't what gunshots sound like right like real gunshots don't make the the blam noise that we hear on television and in movies right so if you're someone who doesn't know any better you could be hearing like pop 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 and you're like huh what is that a firecracker it's like no that's a gun someone's firing a gun yeah like it's weird because it's also a hard thing to to translate like um like I, I, I watch a fair number of, of, of shoot, like uh, competitive shooting videos on YouTube, and you you can't record the sound right because it like blows out the, the 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 kind of audio range, and so you just the people who are talking just end up sounding quieter, right? Like it's like those things are loud, um, uh, and I think you can get closer in a game, right? Because you can you know. You, you've got a ranger to play with, so but it, it's still. I, I think you're right, like because we we have expect expectations about what, um, what gunshots sound like. Like I think the single biggest one is probably silenced. Silenced gunshots are not very quiet. They are still very loud. They just won't damage your hearing. That's their that's their primary purpose. Um, and like you know, something like in, in all popular media, they're just like weird little un, unhearable sound, which is not you know. Very different. Um, uh, so yeah, um, we're, we're a little bit far away from graphics, but I think I think it's I think it's relevant uh, that like the these uh, that, that we're that we're gonna that, that we've we have stopped pushing towards photorealism in a lot of ways. Although, um, like I said, stuff that's primarily vehicles, like racing games, I think get there without any problem at all. Like uh, Drive Club, which I think I actually recently set down at servers recently. Um, looked really good. I'm sure if you watch the E3 press conference, you remember the guy being really weird about it, about how accurate they looked. But they looked really good, and they looked really real, and I think that that's the right place for that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we we are in we are living in a uh, a post Forza world, right? Where every time a new Forza comes out, it is simply about the like the fetishistic nature of having a hyper realistic super cool car that you could never afford right um yeah and so, like so a I, dozen yeah of them. i think the non-violent frameworks are uh you know like in a weird way they get they get a little bit more of a pass when it comes to realism because you can do realism with them without you know traumatizing people yeah yeah um, do you think that this affects, uh, you know, kind of like non-combat, like indie adventure games? Because something that I also think is a little bit interesting is that like, we haven't seen the huge push for photorealism in something like the, the telltale, the telltale walking dead games, right? Like those were cell animated, um, cell shaded and, um, that that is its own kind of distinct animation style, but like, wouldn't you want to go for something more photorealistic if you are making a non-violent adventure game that doesn't really have a lot of shooting or violence? Uh huh. I think you could, but I don't think that that means that not doing it is invalid. Like, there's been a couple of FMV games actually, um, in the 
past couple of years. Like uh, the the I believe I talked about this when I played it a handful of years ago. Um, her story is is a is an FMV game. Um, that's of a woman a woman giving an interview in a police station. It's like different. Oh yeah 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 right right right. I remember um, now. And so that that like works. Um, but I I think you could. I just I wonder if this is one of those things where like the economics don't work out. Like these games get a smaller audience, therefore they can't fight for super crazy graphics. Yeah, or is essentially right. Like the only people who can afford to pour that kind of money into it are the super big publishers, and they don't want to do that on a game that isn't like a game as a service to be cynical about it, right? Like, um, or at least one that's long enough that you can get some real value out of it. Um, and so I guess like maybe in like the not the super far flung future, but like you know, 20 or 30 years when, you know, or 20, probably 10 years past whenever you you can, you can get that reasonably, you know, it'll be available to people to, to less for less money and it will be doable. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I I would have to guess it's probably the economics has to be probably the the primary motivating factor there. Cause otherwise you want to move towards these, um, stylized things that we've been talking about. That way your, your game's a little bit more timeless. Mm-hmm. I always also kind of wonder if there's a certain amount of this that is just, like, on the artist, like, bandwidth level, right? Like, if if I'm making a model for, you know, for, like, a character or something kind of along those lines as an artist, the more layers of naturalism and texture and stuff like that that I have to apply to this thing is, like, the more in-depth that I need to work as an artist. Um, and so I almost kind of wonder if like the real limiting factor is just in the art pipeline itself, because nobody wants to, you know, no artist wants to sit there and model out 30,000 individual blades of grass. Do you know what I mean? Not only that, but it's like a thing that I I think, uh, grows exponentially, right? Because if you have a really good model, you need really good animations because otherwise it's gonna it's, it's not gonna feel right like everything has to grow together right like you yeah, can't have yeah, a yeah, superior definitely. model with blocky animations right like um you can have cartoony animations with cartoony models be and the, it saves kind of everywhere but you're, you're probably right like the 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 art resources are, are are probably enormous to do something like that um that's probably a thing that comes with tech and non-artist tech um like that's the thing I think that comes when uh, we can model human movement more realistically, and so you don't have to do particular animations. You can just kind of like set kind of endpoints and like uh, uh, like inverse kinematics is a thing. If that's a step in this direction, I don't know if you're familiar, but essentially, you, as I understand it, you you kind of give the rough outlines of the movement, and uh, the program uh, goes and fills in kind of the. What, what the physics around that should look like so that it looks fairly realistic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have heard about that kind of, uh, like, a process, right? Like, that that's how dialogue... That's the reason that Mass Effect Andromeda looked like it did, um, is because they were sort of letting an algorithm define the dialogue scenes for how the faces and the mouths moved during dialogue scenes. Um, and there are a couple of scenes in there that you could tell are, like, very handcrafted, 
right? Like they are something that a couple of people, a couple of artists sort of like worked on to make better, right? Yeah. No, Whereas, my, my understanding for a lot of this stuff is that you kind of let the computer do a pass and then you hand touch it up with an artist. That way it looks good. Or Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, which is a thing that you can, you like, you know, what you can do like Minecraft and, you know, like Telltale's Minecraft Tales, whatever, can get away with like looking derp, like derpy because that's the aesthetic, right? Like it keeps going back to that, that same point. Um, I, I guess it, it feels like the, the takeaway from this episode is that it's not that graphics matters per se. It's that aesthetic matters and graphics serve the aesthetic. Does, does that yeah. sound fair? That is exactly how I would phrase it. All right. Well, do you want to do you want to move on to our weeks then? Uh, I guess I do. Nice I guess I do. Uh, the big thing that I've been playing this week is the Prophet and the Warlock DLC, which has released for Total War Warhammer Two. Um, as part of the release, they actually did an uh, an AMA and asked me anything with a couple of members of the dev team, um, and they confirmed that there is going to be no new campaign pack right and that the only things remaining in warhammer 2's dlc cycle are further lord packs this has actually been um a little bit of a controversial point in the total war warhammer community because a lot of people were really excited to see one of two races in warhammer 2 um either araby who are kind of like the you know araby are the like Byzantine Ottoman Empire, uh, like you know, one hundred one thousand and one Arabian Nights Aladdin kind of inspired army. Um, they don't have like a true list, but like there are references to like genies that fight on behalf of um, Araby and like cavalry who fly on flying carpets with scimitars and shit like that. Uh, the other one being the Dogs of War which is widely considered uh, the dogs of war are the name for mercenary companies that can fit in any army in uh, the Warhammer fantasy battle. But the dogs of war uh, are widely considered to be the Southern realms, right? So Astalia and Tilia and stuff like that. Um, and so learning that there aren't going to be new, you know, like learning that there aren't going to be new packs um, for races was something that was, you know, like, it, it was it definitely met with some real disappointment. But the reason I'm bringing all this up is because, like, in, in a world where we have been talking a lot about how, um, so, for instance, like, Anthem uh, or even, like, World of Warcraft and Hearthstone have, like, lost people by fucking up, right, and by making bad decisions, uh, I really appreciate that this is a good example that shows that it goes the other way, too, right? Because it was part of a much bigger DLC pass that included, you know, not just, um, uh, not just paid content like Tehenuan and Ikit Claw as the new paid legendary lords, but also, you know, free content like the Skaven under empire mechanic that allows Skaven to build buildings in enemy cities by, you know, hollowing out underneath them, right. And creating these under cities under them or whatever. Um, and, uh, a free Lord tic-tac-toe, 
who that yes that is his name who uh it's like a flying mounted guy who's all about buffing flying units and stuff like that right like that stuff banks goodwill with people such that even when they hear something that is disappointing or controversial or not what they expected or whatever they don't go crazy about it they just kind of say ah you know that sucks but i'm really excited to see if they bring old world races to the vortex campaign or whatever else you know they might end up doing with these future kind of uh, these future kind of lord, lord packs. And I do sort of wonder a little bit, is like the DLC practice of Creative Assembly, like it's just some, is there something about its DNA that it is different or it's better? Are we all just like, as these like Total War fans, are we all just enslaved to Creative Assembly because there aren't a lot of competitors for their type of game? It's like pretty unique all things considered, I don't really know. I don't have a. I don't have a ton of answers to those. Yeah, I, I, I feel like even if like I can't. I don't think it's that last one because I think if people were mad enough, even if there weren't any competitors, you, the people would still whine, um, mm-hmm. uh, or complain. I don't know. Whine feels a little drastic. I, I think. I think part of it's goodwill. I think part of it's also like, you know, I it's it's it feels like a lot of the stuff they deliver is. Uh, is is good like it feels like they don't have bad releases typically like um something is just to kind of compare to destiny is the early stages of destiny 2 were not great releases um and so people get mad about those kinds of things also i feel like maybe total war is, is less like a, a games as a service even though it has a lot of dlc they're all like buy once dlcs right like you have to pour some money into it, but once you've poured the money in, it's not like you're they're they're coming back to the wall and asking you for more things. It's not like they're coming out with a uh, with a new uh, like color palette for your armies every week that you have to pay a dollar fifty to get. Yeah, and um, and you also don't like have to buy you know like you can still yeah. enjoy sort of the fruits of the profit and the warlock DLC without actually buying it because like those units are still in game. Those factions are still in game and the AI will be engaging in those factions. Right. Not to mention all of the free LC stuff, right? Like they also included a big giant revamp of the Bretonian faction in all of this. And so it's like, even if you don't come back to the game because of, you know, your undying need to cleanse Lustria of the Skaven, Right, um, you still have something to come back to the game for because there's all of this free content. Um, yeah, and and, and I, I think a big part of it too is there's not the perception that like Arab B didn't get made because they were too busy making feathers that you could buy for your headdresses or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like your your lizardman headdresses because that, that stuff doesn't exist in the game. Um, I actually, so to I, be honest with you, I think the reason they're not doing Arab is probably Norska. Um, because they did Norska, which was a late inclusion into the game, right? They really wanted to add this, this, this extra roster, which is awesome and it's great. And Norska is like a ton of fun and a really interesting faction and everything like that. Um, but I think that they saw the trouble that got caused by, you know, making DLC for the game that, you know, like that isn't super interested in... Norska, you, do you do you, do you know what I mean? Like, is, is Norska the of, last pack for Total War One? Yeah, Norska was the last pack for Total War One, but like it had that notoriously tough release when it came to 
integrating the Total integrating War 1 the Total War One stuff. Yeah, because yeah, it, because because yeah. it got developed while Total War Two was being developed. It was uh, it was hard to integrate. Yeah, no, that that, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, yeah, so I kind of expect that they are steering very clear of that because you know now they're cycling up to be doing you know Warhammer Three. We all know Total War Warhammer Three is is uh, is on its way and it's coming. So yeah, yeah, and the, the point is simply not that, that that you're wrong about that. It's just that there's no perception that it's being put aside in the for what would be pursued uh, perceived as like money grubbing content right mm-hmm. this is this is a destiny 3 or destiny 2 thing right like the complaints that like oh well we we don't get refreshes on the armor but every season we get a new set of eververse stuff bungie um and so like you know not that it's one-to-one but i i, I think that's part of it um uh i also think that like creative assembly just doesn't kind of have like the like creative assembly has a good bill surplus EA and Blizzard, or Activision rather, and uh, I guess EA and Activision have a a goodwill dearth um, that kind of, uh, like they killed all of Bioware's goodwill over the past couple of games. Yeah, and I also sort of think um, that it is a smaller audience and it is more niche, and that almost is always more forgiving. When you're not trying to be everyone to every person like everything to every person you get a lot more slack and leeway i think to make the kinds of games um and make the kinds of decisions that people are willing to give you a lot of credit for right total war know their audience and they are making really good decisions about the games and the content that they're releasing towards that audience and that that is a that is a skill you know what i mean like i think path or i'm sorry uh paradox is just as much a niche product as sort of like Total War is in terms of these like hardcore strategy games. But I will say that I think Paradox fucks it up because I've definitely seen DLCs come out from Paradox and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, like this is a really awful addition or it's like an awful pack that is just not worth the cost and I don't see how anyone would pay 20 bucks for it or whatever, you know, iteration on that you want to believe. So I I, I I get that, I, I do, but it also feels like even when Paradox puts out a bad set of DLC, just people like don't buy this and then they move on and they don't like stay mad at Paradox. Right? Like it's not like the this like the next expansion comes out and people are like, Oh, the last one was shit, so this one's also gonna be shit. I think they just kind of like let it go and like move on to the next thing, which is weird. Um I think I think part of it is that like I think part of it is that, like, too, like, like you were saying, like, there, there, there's a niche, but the niche, like, there's everybody's the same in the niche. I, I, I keep going back to this Destiny watering hole, but like, some of the conflicts are like the PvP people are mad, and the PVE people are mad, and those are different people, and things that affect one affect the other, and this gets people mad in a bunch of different directions. So you can't really please everybody. Whereas, I feel like you don't have that same kind of stratification with. Um, with the total with either total war or the paradox games right like you know either um either everybody's in the same boat or like it's understood that like things that aren't primary focus like uh like i bet you could make some complaints about like the weird mechanics or the weird way that players interact sometimes in um the different paradox games but i don't think people care cuz they realize that that's not like the primary mode of play um and so 
I mean, I think part of it too is that uh, at least the paradox games are not supposed to be balanced. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, I do think that paradox games are balanced. They are just balanced in a different way. They are balanced like asymmetrically, where you know, if you want an easy game, you play England, you play the United States or whoever, right? Um, if you want a hard game, you play Brandenburg or you play like the Cherokee or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, so uh, what have you been up to? Well, I know that we both watched Missing Link this week, right? I did not end up seeing Missing Link, actually. But please feel free to tell me all about it. Well, I I did see it. I, it's Studio Leica, I believe is the name of it. Um, Mm. uh, they're, they're the big stop motion studio that did Paranorman, um, Box Trolls, Kubo is the most recent one they did before this, uh, Coraline. I think Coraline is their biggest hit to date. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so I really liked the movie. It was a kid's movie. Um, you know, it, it, it you know was a little bit kind of corny in that way, but it was fine. Um, I thought it was uh, – I thought it was really, really fun, really charming. Um, I really enjoyed the characters. I thought it was really good. Something that's a little bit weird though is like – it's so polished that, like, I felt like it might as well have been CG. Like, I like the stop motion stuff generally, but it was this was so good that, like, it feels almost like, I hate to say it, but they wasted their effort modeling <laughs> it all. Right? Like, like the graphics are good. Computer graphics are good enough, and the, the shapes they were doing were simple enough that you, they, they, could have, they could have done it. I think have you ever seen the movie Flushed Away? No, I don't think uh, so. Flushed Away is a 2005 fucking masterpiece. Okay, everyone? I want you all to go out and watch Flushed Away. Once, one oh. day, you know, in the next... You know, this I mean, a it's, mouse, this country movie, mouse thing? Yeah, this movie is like 15 years old at this point, so I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. But it's like one of those things where this is a movie that is so fertile ground for just endless memes and i am so surprised that like a bunch of you know like a generation of like memeing teenagers has not been like hey do you guys remember fucking flushed away and like gotten all of these flushed away memes like trending on twitter um but the interesting thing about flushed away is flushed away was made um by ardman who is the studio that does sean the sheep uh, that does Wallace and Gromit is their big famous thing, and they do stop motion stuff. And Flushed Away was initially supposed to be stop motion, um, but about halfway through pre production, they kind of realized that because so much of the movie is water based, that they needed to do it uh, CG. And it kind of, and, and, and I, you know, it has the Ardman aesthetic of being right. stop motion, but everything is CG in the movie. Um, and so it has that weird sort of like not one, not the other uh, feeling, though Leica obviously is doing it a little bit of the, like the you know, uh, coming at it from kind of like the opposite direction. Yeah, um, which is, and, and no, the main character in Flushed Away is played by Hugh Jackman, who also plays Sir Lionel Frost. In uh, in Missing Link, the main Would character. Would you look at that? Yeah, Hugh, Jack- Hugh Jackman is so good in, in Flushed Away. Ian McKellen is in that movie. Uh, Kate Winslet is also in that movie. Um, and Whoa. it's just... And also the guy who who's just like the French guy and everything. Have, like, have you ever seen the first Mission Impossible movie with... Um, 
uh, I think his name is like Renault or something. He's like an ex-French FBI agent. Or Wait, he's in Leon the Professional. I oh, he's he's a professional. I was gonna say, yeah, like the, yeah, he's, he's also he's, in. Uh, He's also in uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Godzilla, right? Yeah, he's just like the most French guy ever, and he always plays French guys. But like, there's a plot point in Flushed Away where a bunch of French ninjas get hired, and there are just so many French people jokes. Like <laughs> sometimes, you know, like Ard, you know, Ardman is a very, very British production house. Um, like their whole movie early man, which came out last year is a giant riff on like the soccer politics, football, whatever, you know, like Manchester United is the, are the good guys and, you know, Liverpool are the bad guys or whatever, you know, like whatever it is. And it's one of those things where, um, you hear pretty frequently that like people really get it if they like understand England and they kind of don't if they don't. And this is a little. This has a little bit of that. This has like a whole bunch of like, you know, English people making fun of French people jokes in there um, that is, that are unique. But that is my that's my hearty recommendation for everyone to go watch Flushed Away. You will not regret it. Yeah, and, and I will. I will recommend that you go watch The Missing Link because uh, I thought it was. I thought it was a lot of fun. Zal Galifianakis is the the Sasquatch. Um, he, he, he works it really well. He works like, uh, you know, I, I, I have kind of associated him with being a little bit dirtier than, than a kid's movie, but he does it really well. Um, uh, what's the, the, the female lead Zoe Saldana. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just charming. It's, it's really, it's really, it's a really fun watch. Um, I don't know if you like, if, if you like that kind of thing, go, go, go watch it. Um. I will recommend it to you as well, buddy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have I have every intention to go see it. I just, I literally, I was so tired the day that I was supposed to see it that I just like conked and didn't uh, and didn't get around to it at all. Uh, I, you know, actually, can I just follow up with something? Did you ever watch um, Icarus, the the Netflix doc? Yes, I did. did, did how did what, did what did you think about it? I remember. I thought this it was like cool. Week, I, I didn't. Ago. I didn't think it was as mind blowing as as you made it out to be. But I thought it was really yeah. cool. I kind of feel uh, like I oversold it, to be honest with you. I, part of what made Icarus work so well for me is that all I knew about it was that it won the Oscar, and so I had. So I just didn't have any sense of what I was getting into. But I think I primed it a little too hard yeah. and sort of kind of like flooded the chamber. But yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was good. So you know, if you want to watch that, go watch that. Uh, speaking of things that I have watched that you have recommended that I watch, I finished season one of Game of Thrones. Oh my uh, god! Please, can we talk about Game of Thrones? Well, we can talk about season one, which okay, I also yes. had read. I had read the first book, so I had uh, I, I you know it's all stuff that I had known so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was actually kind of expecting them to le- end the first season on the execution of Ned. Um, uh, I guess spoilers for Game of Thrones season one. Uh, <laughs> That's like probably one of the most famous plot points in yeah. like human history at this point. It's yeah. kind of like spoiling that like Jesus rises on the third day. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, Jesus, so what, Jesus what, what rises think, when this episode comes yeah, out? What, what did you think about the first season of Game of Thrones? Um, I thought I th- you know I thought it was good. Um, I think I might like the show better than the books, at least for the How, how much of the books have you read? Just the first book. 
Okay, okay. Um, and maybe uh, I, I very much think them. that the first season of television is better than the first book. But I don't think that that holds true for all of them. Um, it, it, you know, it, it becomes a little tough to evaluate. The big thing that the books, or I'm sorry, that the first season of television does, which is really valuable, um, is that because it's not rooted in POV characters, it gets to explore just like really juicy, you know, scenes that don't show up in the books. Like, so for instance, there's a conversation between. Cersei and Robert and neither of them are POV characters in the Game of Thrones book where they kind of express their like mutual disdain for one another and bond over it in in you know like in a way um that I think is like a really powerful and like good scene I mean well powerful it's not like powerful like emotionally speaking it's just like yeah. you know it's just like it's a, it's a really strong scene that, that you don't have in the books because of this kind of limitation, um, and that you do have in the show, which is really helpful. Yeah, um, they they made they, did in the book did Arya not Arya Sansa Sansa she like sells her sister sells out her sister harder in the book, doesn't she? Uh, I, I in what specific what? way? Um, so when the dog or when the wolf uh, okay, attacks yes. Joffrey, yeah, like she yeah. she like totally sells out her sister, um, and Gigi kind of kind of soften it for this one. And I I feel like I caught a couple of those things. Like I, they they killed uh, Daenerys's brother a lot later in the season than they did in the book. It felt like it happened, or at least you know it's been a while. But it, my, if my memory serves me right, it happens very early in the book. Although it's the same kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just don't go back to Daenerys as much. Do you have? Do you have thought? Like, do 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 you? Who's who's your favorite character from the first season of Game of Thrones? Uh, probably Tyrion. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, Tyrion and uh, Jon Snow are my favorite characters. Okay. Uh, um, uh, all right. <laughs> why not? Why not? Like, does it bother you that Ned loses because he's? Oh, too... I mean, he's dead, <laughs> right? So it's not like. I, I guess if you ask me, like, who is my favorite character in the season, that would probably be up there. But, like, if you're asking, like, who are my favorite characters going forward, Ned's out of the story as far as I I, I just mean, like, as a review of the first season, okay. right? Who was who was your favorite character in the first season? Um, ooh. Um, I, I mean, maybe like, this is just me, like, baiting you for the answer, because my answer is all, like, I very, I, do, I really identify with Ned Stark, right? So like, I, I, I like Ned a lot, but, like... He's kind of like wrote's the wrong word, but like, um, like he kind of goes the way. Th- I'm probably poisoned by the fact that I read the book so long ago, and so like him dying didn't have the same impact mm-hmm. um, that it probably should have because like you kind of expect him to survive. Also, they don't set it up as much because like in the book. They know that Jamie's captured, right? And like Cersei, like loses her shit because she's afraid that they're gonna kill Jamie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't—they didn't really sell that uh, in 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 the. In, oh, you in, don't think so? See, this is actually something that I find excellent in Game of Thrones storytelling, like truly excellent. And the thing that, like the 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 discreet piece of its storytelling that elevates it from the you know. Uh, that like separates it from the the chaff i guess i would say um which is that like even 
for a series with a lot of foregone conclusions in the sense that like they know over the first six seasons right like basically what comes up after every you know like all these big twists they still put in a lot of work to display that these are choices by characters who have a lot of agency in the narrative right and so like it's not just that you know it's like it's not just that cersei pleads with joffrey to have or Sansa, well, both of them kind of do. Plead well, with Joffrey to have Cersei Ned really sent to the wall, right? Like Cersei, like it seems kind of taken aback by it, and it doesn't like rest on her too much when he decides to execute him anyway. Yes, yeah, maybe it is ahead. bigger in the book. I actually kind of don't remember that instance. But the thing that I like about that is like, yeah, it's a really plausible thing that like maybe Ned is going to be sent to the wall and he's going to go be a part of Jon Snow's storyline, right? And that's a plausible, right. you know, like that's a plausible direction of the narrative both. And it is a natural outgrowth of kind of the incentives of the character's structure so that even when like the plot twist happens of Ned getting executed, right, in in the uh, uh, Baylor Square, Square Baylor Square. I can't remember what it's called. Something Baylor. Um, the it's not. It's not like a foregone conclusion of the narrative. This is something right. that I think plagues other pieces of storytelling, which is like a writer knows that they have this conclusion, and so they don't really spend a lot of time or put any dramatic weight on the alternatives to that conclusion. And something that happens all the time in Game of Thrones is characters will create plans, right, like responding to all of these incentives, and then, you know, plot twists happen, and they have incomplete information, and so, you know, like, they die, or something goes wrong, or they get sidetracked, or something, you know, like, any of those kinds of things, right? Um, But, like, it very much roots them in their narrative agency, and I think that's the number one thing that makes Game of Thrones, like, really special and good. If if I'm going to be reductive and dismissive, I'm going to call that George R. R. Martin being unafraid to kill his characters. Um which I don't think is totally fair, but I think that there's a, a, a fair amount of that, that like you don't ex- like part of what makes the death of Ned so surprising is you don't expect him to die. Cause he is ostensibly the main character of the first book. Yeah. Um, uh, um, but I think, I think a lot of it too is like, there are a lot of kind of unfired or maybe misfired Chekhov guns that like tend to permeate things, right? Like, like Jon Snow's mother, right? Like mm-hmm. that the gun is not going to fire with Ned telling Jon Snow who his mother is because he's dead now. Right. Yeah. And that's a thing that you like it's one of those things where like, well, Ned can't die because he has to tell Jon about his mother, and that's a clear Chekhov's gun. Right. Yeah, so Ned uh, has plot armor, right? Yeah. But um, then he, but doesn't he doesn't have plot armor because, you know, that Chekhov's gun is gonna just stay unfired. Yeah. Um I by the way, I, I I was told I, I know what the, that that the the end of that plot is because I was curious because um, my theory going out of the first book was that Jon Snow was I like I figured that he was uh, Ned's sister's kid but I thought that maybe he was Robert and her kid and that Ned took him away because he was afraid Cersei was going to kill her um, kill him rather which like I guess when I read the book Cersei like always seemed like a bitch whereas she seems more kind of like less anticipated of a bitch if that makes sense right like 
Oh, okay. Like, how do I want to put this? That's not that's not quite right. In the show, it seems like Ned Ned trust trust maybe the wrong word. Like Ned and Cersei, the way that Ned and Cersei interact, I felt like in the book, Ned was more aware of Cersei's worse side than he was in the show until he gets exposed to it, if that makes sense. Um, I think he's very aware of it. Th- this is part of this is part of what I find very compelling about Ned uh, as a character is like I like that he is both honorable but also smart, right? Um, in that like he does make a plan th- that is a real that is a real plan to win, right? Yeah, and he d- and he doesn't right, but it's not like but it's not one of those things where he like bullheadedly refuses to kind of play you know, quote-unquote, the Game of Thrones. He very much tries to play the Game of Thrones by, you know, double-dealing with Littlefinger in order to get, like, you know, uh, in order to get control of Joffrey, I guess how is you know, control of the crown, right? Control of yeah. the throne, whatever. Um, and become, like, regent uh, or whatever else. But, but, like, he, but he won't play it to the extreme, right? Like, my distinct impression is that Littlefinger would have actually backed him if he was willing to seize the throne for himself. Right? Like, he, he explicitly denies, like, like he explicitly denies that when when uh, when Ned says, no, we have to put Stannis on the throne. Um, I think this is really interesting because, like, you get the sense that, like, you know, uh, Littlefinger is very much out for himself and that uh, the eunuch, I can't remember his name, is... Varys. Yeah, Varys is a little bit more servant of the realm, but they're both kind of like in that servant of the realm state. Like, you know, we can't put Stannis on the throne because he's going to be a terrible fucking king. So we won't back Ned's coup if he's going to put Stannis on the throne, but we would put him back his coup if he was going to put himself on the throne. Although, I guess that's an unresolved question because Littlefinger also has the thing with Ned's wife, which is... I don't know. But my my thing is mostly like I like I agree that he's unsuccessful, but he at least tries, right? Yeah. And I think that that's like a question of like goals, if that makes yeah. sense, right? You know, you know Ned had the goal of getting Stannis on the Iron Throne, whereas you know Renly has the goal of getting himself on the Iron Throne. Hypothetically, Ned and Renly could have like teamed up or or sort of whatever, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Ned has the goal of seeing the proper succession happen, and like if Joffrey had been his had been Robert's actual son, he would have had no problem with it. Yeah, right? and like, like you know, he even though Joffrey's know, a little shit, right? Yeah, even though Joffrey's a huge piece of garbage, um, he also I this is this is like a pet point of mine a little bit because I feel like Ned gets a little too much shit from the community in general um, because like you know like Ned also gets the information to Stannis that the it, that the information that uh robert's kids are bastards this is actually a change from the book in the yeah. book stannis already knows robert's kids are bastards and he has fled king's landing after john aaron dies because he's afraid john aaron was murdered for finding it out right john aaron and stannis find out together in the book uh in the show though ned is the one to figure it out in the first place and send the raven to dragonstone to tell stannis hey listen you know your guy is or uh you are the rightful king of uh you know the andals and the first men and all of the other fucking like all the other fucking like names um yeah no I, but I, I think a really 
a really great moment that really struck me is, is like uh, is Eamon Targary- Targaryen asking Jon Snow if like if uh, if uh, if Ned would choose to tell the to to hold to his honor or save his kid, and John says he you know he'd hold to his honor or like he says something like that, and it immediately cuts to or maybe not immediately, but it feels like it's immediately cuts to Ned lying um, to save his daughter. Mm-hmm. Which I yeah, I think was... that 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 is probably one of the most powerful aspects of it because it's like just the height of tragedy yeah um that you know that he admits to something that is blatantly untrue for like the ex you know it's like it's this double dose of like nobility right um in the face of cruelty that just like makes it for ah just makes it so like unendingly tragic um yep so do you do you like know what what's gonna happen in season two and what like the direction for season two is or anything like that um, so I know a couple things, but I don't know exactly what I don't know. So I'd rather not like dis- discuss it if that makes sense. Okay, fair enough. Right. Like, I, I know at some point certain things happen, right? Like, and you know, the reason I know most of those things is because you could see them happening from a while, mile away, like Bran getting some sort of mystical power. I know that that happens at some point, but that's obvious from the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, were the like, I don't remember the dragons being at the end of the first book, but I might just be misremembering. But it was also obvious, and it's also at the end of the first season, right? They're crawling all over Daenerys. Yeah, the dragons are the very end of the last chapter. Okay, I think I think they're the very so, end of the last chapter. Yeah. So, <laughs> I might have not read the last chapter of the first book because I listened to it on tape. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think I might have just, like, I just never got around to listening to the last one. Because, like, you know, it's, it's all about Daenerys and the, the, the Westeros storyline is is Our queen. mopped up. And, love, and that's, what I, that's what I care about. Hmm? I, I'm, like, I'm so, so hyped for this show. Um, and I'm so sad that it's going to be over. Not, not to spoil anything, but, like, season uh, eight, episode one came out. Um and I just found myself, like, unbridled with excitement for it, um, which was a weird feeling because I remember, you know, like, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there. And I remember consuming a lot of media that was about how Game of Thrones Season 7 is really bad. Uh, and I, like, at the time, I really agreed. But, like, now I just... It's not even that I don't... It's not even that I disagree. It's not even that I change my mind. I just don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where it's like, I'm just so invested in the story that, like, I don't know that there is anything that will disinvest me in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, do, do, you, do you think we'll eventually get a Game of Thrones Brotherhood? Um, which, for the people at home that don't know... Uh, uh, what, what's the name of the anime? Full Metal Alchemist had an initial anime run that got ahead of the manga... And it was considered to be okay, but not great. And then when the manga was finished, he did it again and followed the storyline of the manga. And so similar, something similar could happen here, right? Like you could have, um, you could at least have an alternate. It's it's the last two seasons that are not written, right? The um, last two books. The, yeah, the last two books are not written. The, honestly, I think it would be impossible to do a Game of Thrones Brotherhood. I mean, that's, I, you know, listen, I, okay, the Lord of the Rings just got a billion dollars to do... Uh, 
to be done at Amazon, so I guess I shouldn't say, like, never say never, but Game of Thrones is already such a monumental thing, and it has to crunch a ton from the books, right? Um, There are dropped characters and plot lines that just never show up in the TV show that are all over the books. Um, and I feel like that has to happen. There's some people who are really mad about that. There's a lot of like book versus show kind of, uh, animosity or whatever, but like, I am very much in the camp of like, listen, you know, you just can't put that many fucking BBC actors on a payroll like that. You know, like you, at, at a certain point you just need to consolidate and you need to like, you know, condensed down. One of my favorite, one of my very favorite characters in Game of Thrones doesn't show up, or in the book series, does not show up in the TV show at all. Victorian Greyjoy, who is um, Theon's uncle, uh, is a huge, awesome, badass. He's a giant piece of shit. I actually want to say that first and foremost. He's like super sexist and misogynist and just like an asshole and everything. But he's just a fucking baller and I just love how like how few fucks he gives. Like, you know, the Iron Island guys are naval like raiders like Vikings. Um and Victorian wears full plate, which is insanely dangerous to do in ship to ship combat because right. if you fall overboard, you, you sink, sink and you drown. Right, but he just doesn't give a fuck. Right, uh, he has a big giant helm that that's fashioned in the shape of a kraken and wields this big, you know, big battle axe and you know stuff like that. You just have to cut. He doesn't, you know, like he he is an important character in the books, but you just have to cut important characters from the books sometimes, and that yeah, means yeah. that people like you know Victorian Greyjoy get cut out. Strong Belwas is another example of this. Um, a pit fighter that joins Daenerys's entourage. He is super cool and super awesome, and he doesn't show up in the show, uh, and it kind of sucks to be honest. But like, yeah, I don't know. I I don't think that uh, I don't think that uh, Game of Thrones Brotherhood is really possible just because of the scale of the 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 scope of the books is just so mm-hmm. huge. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll get a Game of Thrones anime. Maybe. Uh, I, I could actually see that. I could see that actually happening. Yeah, I, um, you know, I could see that. I could see that making it work. Uh, it, would, it would be weird, but I could, I could see, like, Studio Trigger doing something. It, it, wouldn't be quite, it wouldn't be quite Game of Thrones, right? It would probably be, like, a very anime version, but it, it, it could, be, could, could be cool. But uh, speculations on that aside, but did you have anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I'm good. All right. Uh, well, in that case, if you'd like to email us and tell us what you thought, uh, what you think about graphics and games or about Game of Thrones or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast, you can reach us at spiritsplaygames at gmail.com. You can, uh, all, or, or at podcast at spiritsplaygames.com. You can re- re- rate us and review us on iTunes. We love it. Um, you can watch twitch.tv slash nerdsplaygames, even though we haven't done anything on there in a while. Um, I think that's everything I had. Buddy, do you have anything else you're looking to promote? I have nothing else I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.